Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you and to keep you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door, knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his, on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. It's a blessing to get to be with you this morning as we prepare to draw to our close our Defying Gravity series. Uh, Davis texted me yesterday to update me on his travels. He was on his way to Tel Aviv and then will be flying to General Conference and he told me that he was praying for me and asked me how I felt about my sermon this weekend. To which I replied, I've actually decided to do an interpretive dance for 20 minutes from the pulpit. So if next week y'all could just keep that up and tell them that I did really well, I'd appreciate that. We'll see if you found it funny or not. In addition, yesterday afternoon I was sitting in my chair by the fireplace enjoying a rainy day, and my wife Carlisle, who serves at Franklin First United Methodist, who wasn't going to be able to make it this morning, said, would you please read me your sermon uh, so I can see what I think about it? So I started to read it to her, got done, looked over to say, what did you think? What would you change? And she was asleep. <laughs> so I don't have many edits this morning because I was relying on her. If you're just joining us, we spent the past seven weeks going through each of the letters to the churches found in John's revelation. John finding himself exiled and imprisoned on the island of Patmos off of Asia Minor finds himself having more than just the average Sunday. In fact, it's getting a little out there. And he begins writing words, not his own, but God's to the seven churches he had been serving. The churches that had latched onto this movement called the Way, in which they were following the teachings of a man named Jesus. Now these churches, just like us, had each, each had their struggles in following the teachings of this new movement. And God had a word for each of them. And he will use his messenger and the servant, John, to speak to each of them. 
I will admit that this study has certainly made my job in the student ministry a little more difficult. Each week, a new teen, and in several cases, the same teen, has come back with new or the same question about what the heck is going on with these churches. And I have to admit, after my answers weren't cutting it, I was tempted to start giving out Dr. Chapel's cell phone number and just start saying, text him about it. This was his idea anyways. <laughs> I've th- seen our high school girls' Bible study at the end of a Wednesday night staring blankly at a whiteboard. I've, seen countless ex- or I've explained countless times the Jezebel, and the high school guys even drew out some of the visions that they had, or at least how they interpreted them. How Yoda made it in there, I'm not exactly certain. (laughs) But nonetheless, we continue on our journey to find ourselves in the midst of John's revelation. Last week, Reverend Casey Orr shared with us about the church at Philadelphia, the victorious church, the keep-going church, the reliable church the church who is going to be made into pillars in the middle of the temple, the church in which we were reminded that God's love will always find us, as Casey so beautifully put it. In excitement to preach this morning, I went off to read commentary on the church I had been assigned, Laodicea. Nearly giddy, I sat down to read the first words of commentary, which read, the most negative letter. I started reading more and decided I'd have rather had the dead church at Sardis. I continued to study to get a closer look at my new church and what exactly I'd signed myself up for. I started from the top. Laodicea is described as having little to like, not hot, not cold, stale, stagnant, braggarts, pitiful, and blind beggars. Now I usually try to find myself in the midst of the passage that I'm studying, but this felt like it was gonna be a little bit of a leap. I was beginning to wonder if Davis was trying to send me a message. This church has had quite the background, and at this point, God, through John, was okay with just letting them have it. Recently, I got roped into doing a workout in a gym in memory of someone. While the cause and sentiment were great, the workout was just plain ridiculous. I should have known better when I asked my trainer about strategies to finish said workout, and his reply was only laughter. Nonetheless, I showed up with my laces tied tight and my headband secure. To say I sweat is an understatement. I began the workout thinking God never intended any human to do these kinds of things in the name of fitness, and certainly not in the name of fun. As I slowly checked everything off the list, I finally came to the last task. A half-mile run while holding 50 pounds overhead. Less than halfway in, it was clear to my trainer and all the people driving past me on the road that I was both crazy and not going to make it much longer. Having set the weight down, I was doubled over, and my trainer came running over to give me a little encouragement and instruction. I'll never forget his profound words. Your shoulders are shot now. They're not coming back. You might as well just sprint with it. And so I did for half a mile. Sprint and drop the weight, then sprint, then drop, then sprint till I was done. I thought about how I must have looked for quite some time, a grown man picking up all the weight that he can and running as fast as he can with little direction. And I think maybe that's the story that we're about to see in the church at Laodicea. 
They have picked up their weight, their shortcomings, their imperfections, and they just took off running from God, holding them overhead as if they were a trophy. And I would guess that maybe some of us would find ourselves in the midst of that story. We, like Laodicea, are more than willing to pick up our stuff and run like crazy with it away from God, even though we know we are not going to make it very far. So let us look together at the final church, the church full of issues, the lukewarm church, the church sitting on the fence, the church tucked behind a locked door, the church that in many ways has run from who they ought to be. As with the church at Pergamum, Laodicea can be described in the category of complacent and compromising. And knowing the context of those times, it is not the most sought after characteristic for the church. The Roman culture at the time that dominated into Asia Minor held in high value wealth. They sought after the finest of items and living within that culture, it appears as if it rubbed off on some of the people at Laodicea. They like all other Romans wanted gold, silver, bronze, precious stones, pearls, fine linens, silk, ivory, marble, and more. They struggled with being in the culture, but not of the culture. And while the Christian movement grew, the gap between Christianity and Judaism grew larger. You see, in those days, Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism, which grandfathered in the Christians to some of the exceptions granted to the Jewish culture by the Romans, exceptions that helped them separate their faith and the culture around them. And as the gap grew wider between the two, so did the leniency. They now were called to live by many of the Roman laws once overlooked. And as they were required to live by many of the Roman regulations, they had the struggle of choosing between claiming their faith fully and relinquishing their Roman wealth or living fully into the Roman culture and claiming all the riches. So what did they do? From the looks of this letter, they picked up what they deemed as a treasure and ran with it. The start of this letter is similar to those of the other letters we have read. Jesus knows the works of the church. Laodicea is about to get its report card, and I fear the results are not going to be great. There are not going to be many A's on this one. Immediately, we read that the church is neither cold or hot, but rather described as lukewarm. Being described as lukewarm should be familiar to the community found in a valley that has to pipe in its water. From one side, it pipes in cold water from the mountain peaks that would be just lukewarm by the time it got to their city. And on the other side, they piped in hot water from the hot springs that would also become lukewarm by the time it got to their city. Their water was neither refreshingly cold or therapeutically hot. It was lukewarm, the type of temperature that you would rather spit out. And the church at Laodicea was not only drinking lukewarm water, it had become lukewarm in its faith to Christ. And Jesus had had enough of lukewarm. What does lukewarm faith look like? I think sometimes lukewarm faith can look like the image of standing on the fence post, stuck between all in 
and all out, Laodicea finds it easier to act passively rather than pursue their faith. They've perched themselves on the fence of faith, and they've chosen to stay as long as they can. Their actions show neither a complete distrust of Christ or the warm presence of the Holy Spirit that they seek for guidance. They settled in a comfortable place, and it does not appear they are planning to move anytime soon. Now, I don't know about you, but sitting on a fence does not actually sound all that comfortable. But I fear that sometimes it is more comfortable to stay perched than to seek fully the guidance of the Holy Spirit that might change everything about how we interact with the world around us. Laodicea, knowing fully the disappointment found in lukewarm, chooses to lead a life of lukewarm faith because it's like having a foot in both worlds. Their actions and works do not match their proclamation of Christ as Lord. I have to admit that like any good Wesleyan, reading this passage has led me to self-examination. Where in my life would I rather stand on the fence than choose all in for Christ? Where do my actions align more with the culture than that of my Savior? As I examine, I must say that there are some areas in which we cannot afford to settle for a fence post faith. We must choose to be all in people. People who embrace the call to love God and love people with our whole mind, body, and soul. We must be all in on loving the orphan and the widow the lost and the least. We cannot aff- ignore, afford to ignore that call because it, because it is what helps bring about the kingdom of God. When I say we cannot afford to stand on the fence post, I'm not talking about a stance on a political topic. I'm, talk, I'm talking about the acceptance of a kingdom invitation. To participate in that which offers eternal life to all those who seek newness in Christ. To extend to the world around us a reflection of the God that was willing to go all in for us. The passage tells the readers that while they had thought they are rich and prosperous in their current state, they are really wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their lukewarm life shows its true state and lacks a great deal. So Jesus offers some friendly advice. My advice, he says, is that you go buy gold from me that has been purified by fire so that you may be rich in white clothing to wear so that your nakedness won't be shamefully exposed and ointment to put on your eyes so that you may see. I correct and discipline those whom I love. So be earnest and change your hearts and lives. They've gotten a to-do list. How do they settle this lukewarm problem they have? It's easy, check off the simple to-do items. Buy gold from God, get a new wardrobe, preferably made in heaven, get some eye drops, get up, turn around, and run after God. Sounds like to me that God is trying to change everything about these people's lives. Establish your wealth not in gold found on earth, but in me, he says. Clothe yourselves in my desire for your life. Change the lens by which you see the world around you so that you may see me in all that you do. 
Change the direction that you're headed and come after me. Living like that does not sound like a church sitting on the fence. It sounds like a church that has embraced the way a savior is going to influence their culture instead of the other way around. The joy I find these days is not in the culture around me, but rather in the Lord that impacts the culture in which I find myself. At the new year, I sat down and wrote a list of things that I needed to do in order to hit the reset button on a new year for myself. There were the normal things on this list, like eat better, work out more, sleep in less, pull less pranks on the people at church. But the ones that have really changed me, that have affected the joy that I find in the world around me, are more about the areas in my life I surrendered to God. The list given to the people at Laodicea is not about taking away their riches and joys. It's about surrendering in a way that replaces fleeting joy with that which is lasting. And when I first read the next little bit, I started to feel a little bit better about the church because it said that Jesus was knocking on the door waiting to come in for dinner. I mean, surely Jesus is not going to show up at the door of a church that is doomed. He's coming over for a nice meal to reconcile with the church. I bet he even brought a pie to make nice with everybody. Then I remembered some of my best friends from high school. I never found my best friends from high school knocking at the door. I found them already in my kitchen making a sandwich. Jesus was knocking at the door and waiting and waiting. My guess, the church just got one of those new video doorbells and they're hiding behind the couch like I do when someone comes by selling something. Everything I've read about Jesus, though, tells me he's not a man that needs to knock. In John 20, Jesus appears to the disciples while they are meeting behind locked doors. Jesus is not knocking because he needs permission to come in, but because he is providing an invitation for the church to step out. They have chosen, chosen their treasures, their desired life, and they've locked themselves behind the door seeking refuge in a broken culture. Jesus does not knock on a door because he needs permission to get in, but because he wants us to accept an invitation to get out. This morning, the invitation we have to enter into this place pales in comparison to the invitation we have to take what we have heard, what we have experienced in worship, and leave with it. To share it, to live it out. Jesus desires to come into our lives, to sit at our table, and embrace that which we hide away from him. This past week, I was reminded of some of my favorite words spoken by Jim Valvano, the championship coach of the 1983 North Carolina State team. He said this about his father. My father gave me the greatest gift any person could give another person. He believed in me. When everyone else didn't, said I didn't measure up, he believed in me. Jesus does not come knocking on our door because we are lost cause already too far gone. Jesus comes knocking because he believes we are not too far gone. The lukewarm fence sitting locked behind a closed door church at Laodicea is not being given up on. The letter is saying that in spite of all that, I still believe in you. 
and he believes in us today. And he knocks at the door calling us to be all in so that as we go from this place, we may not find joy and pleasure in our culture, but bring joy and purpose and meaning to the culture around us so that we might be a light on a hill. I've been contemplating Revelation a lot over the past weeks as I study and answer questions for teenagers. I keep trying to sum it all up in just a few words, but that's not easy for a book as complex as Revelation. One after, afternoon, I read the final words of the letter to Laodicea and those to each church in the message translation. Eugene Peterson writes it like this, listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the church, the wind words, the words of Christ, the words that were and are and are to come, the words that are present in this very room. Reminded me of a story, and with this I close. A few weeks ago, my stepmother called me with a story that she just had to share. Her older brother had passed away earlier on in the week on a Monday morning in his secluded cabin in the hills of Virginia. He had been battling sickness for quite some time, and they all knew the time was drawing near for him to make his journey home. The evening before his passing, in the midst of making plans for her brother to be transported to hospice care, Jane received a phone call from her sister. Her sister had just received a text message from a familiar number. It was their mother's number, a number that they had disconnected over a year ago at the time of her passing. They assumed by this point the number had been assigned to somebody else, but it was striking what the message said. Simply said, I'm on my way. On the eve of her brother's home going, their mother had assured them he wouldn't be coming home to an empty house. I'm on my way. Now how that number connected with that phone on that night with that message, I can't explain except to say that God's words are ones of hope. The words of God are blowing through this church and our lives and they are giving us hope. That's the message of these letters in this book. I'm on my way. It's the message of hope we read in the seven churches and to each of us. Christ is willing to meet us in our struggle and our shortcoming, and he has not and will not leave us abandoned. We will face struggles. We will face differing of opinions from within this very sanctuary, but we will not be left by Christ. We will be met there and we will thrive not under our own doing, but by Christ. I'm on my way. It's the promise of hope to me and to you. Let it be so in this moment and forevermore. Amen.